There are four Sundays of Advent each year, so that means we're doing four lessons on love. Our first lesson was about loving the difficult people. All right. Our first of the four lessons was on loving the difficult people. Second, I began to think about, we began to think about together how to love the faraway people. And we looked at how our brains can help us in loving, and we looked at how our brains can limit us in loving. We saw how we are hardwired for two things, to compete with one another, but we're also hardwired to cooperate with and to sympathize with and to care about one another. But we also saw that this instinct, this inborn into our mind's process that we go through, this instinct to cooperate and to empathize and to care about, that instinct tends not to kick in with people who are far away. If you see a news clip about a house that burns down, and that house is right down the street from you, if it is a house where the children who live there go to school with your children, it's a house that belongs to people who run a business that you tend to frequent, then when that happens and when you see that news story, you have one interior brain response kind of experience. But if you see that same news story and that house is in Crimea or that house is in Mogadishu or that house is in Bangkok, then you're going to have a very different kind of response. That's just the way that our brains work. That's the way that our brains are wired. And in that way, we saw, our brain both helps us and hinders us in the spiritual practice of love. The spiritual practice of love is to extend the same love to the far away as we do to the nearby. And our brains kind of limit, limit us on half of that equation. Our brains only work with us to help us with half of it. So, this lesson on loving the faraway people is happening because our ancient sages and our saints have taught us that there is a love reality that exists There is a love reality that you can experience that is bigger than what your brain processes will naturally take you to. There is an everything-is-connected reality that is bigger than our brains tend to experience. Because I can see out of my eyes, and I can't see out of your eyes, from the very beginning, I began to intuit the way the world is. And the way that I intuited it is that I am separate over here seeing out of my eyes. You are separate over there seeing out of your eyes. And you're a distinct, discrete package of being. Because that's what I experienced. That's the way my eyes work. Like I said last week, I can move my foot, but I can't move your foot. And so because that's what we experience, we begin to frame a reality that says that's the way things are. But because that is what our brains experience... And because that is what we intuit, that does not mean that it is what is ultimately true. None of us intuit that this solid lectern is really just vibrating energy. We don't intuit that because I'm putting my papers right on it. It's holding it. It feels solid to me. So my intuition doesn't speak to me the truth, and that happens all the time. My intuition says that I love the nearby people and I don't love the faraway people, but that doesn't mean it is ultimately true. Our saints have told us and given us an understanding of reality that directly contradicts what we experience with our bodies, what we experience with our brains. You and I only appear to be two. We are, they insist, in fact, 
every one of us a member one of the other. We saw that in our Journey to Oneness lesson last year. We being many are one body. Every one of us is a member of one another. One is a better description of reality, it turns out, than two. Now last week, George spoke about the illusion of separation. He used the image of this kind of a leaf to show us that the way that we tend to think is sometimes too limited. So when we look at this kind of leaf that shows up in palms and ferns and ash trees and hickory trees and pecan, pecan trees, I learned that when I got here to the south, pecan. Who in the world doesn't say pecan? What is wrong with you people? (laughs) We look at a picture like that, and we think, ah, that has 22 leaves. I counted it up, and then I realized I'd counted wrong. So let's just say it has 22 leaves, 22 separate distinct entities, but botanists tell us that is, in fact, just one leaf. Or think about the whole tree. The branch is one thing, and the trunk is another thing, because we use language that way. We have a word for branch, which makes it a thing, and it goes to a slot in our brain because we've got a word for it, and we've got a word for trunk. And because it, we have a word for trunk, it goes to a slot in our heads. And so consequently, we, because we use language that way, we begin to develop distinctive elements of branchiness and distinctive elements of trunkiness, and we hold them in our heads. So therefore, branch and trunk become, in our minds, separate entities, discrete things. But upon reflection, if you think about a tree, you realize that the bigger picture isn't that the branch is one and the trunk is a separate one. The reality is that branch-trunk together comprise one. A branch cannot exist without a trunk or vice versa, so a better description of tree reality is that branch and trunk are a oneness, not a two-ness. And these kinds of metaphors help us kind of understand what the spiritual ancestors that are in our tradition intuited a long time ago, because Jesus said almost the same thing in his famous vine and the branches. They're connected. They're one uh, lesson. Paul said as much in the text that we just read from the wall. We are connected. We're not separated. We are one. We are not two. There is a Doug expression of divine breath, and it's about six feet tall. It's bald, and it works here at the church. That's what the Doug expression of divine breath does. But there's also a you expression of divine breath. And you're as tall as you are, and you have hair the color that you have, and you, as I said, can move your foot, and I can move mine, but we can't move one another's. But the reality that we've intuited, our spiritual forebears teach us, is not that way. We think of us as us, and the people in Haiti as them. That's what our brains do the way our brains work. And when you come to Haiti in particular, for goodness sakes, they look different. They sound different. They eat different foods. They wear different clothes. They are the super version of them to our us. But in fact, our tradition teaches every human being on the earth, people in Raleigh and people in Ferrier Village are one, not two. It's only our brains that deceive us and tell us differently. And the call of the spiritual life is to care about the well-being of the far away with the same intensity and zeal that we care about the well-being of those close by. Another one of the texts that we put up on the wall. 
When this spiritual reality takes hold of you, Jesus says, this kingdom of God reality that he spent so much time talking about, when this thing awakens inside of you and you awaken to the bigger reality, when you awaken to the bigger truth, then you will love God and you will love your neighbor and you will even love your enemy. Or, to say it in terms that we're talking about in this lesson, you will love God, you will love those who are nearby, and you will even love those who are far away. That's the framework given us by our tradition. But I've talked along these lines frequently enough and heard the feedback during the what are you thinking time frequently enough to kind of anticipate what you're going to say and kind of see how the tumblers are going in your brain. And it might be something like this. Oh, now, wait a minute, Doug. There are seven billion them that are really us folks out there. And my life is pretty full over here. I'm doing well to take care of my family. I'm doing well to take care of my siblings. I'm doing well to take care of my sick mom. I'm doing well to take care of my kids. I'm doing well if I can contribute to the well-being of my network of friendship. And come on, Doug, I'm stretching a little bit here, and I'm getting involved in the community here at NRCC, and I'm stretching to care about the well-being even of this community. And you do not have to load the whole world upon the camel's back that is my life in order to break it. All you have to add is that one little orphan village in Haiti, and that'll do it. All you have to add is that one little orphan village in Haiti, that little bit will break me because my life is already so full, and I just can't take on them being us. There's too much us out there. So if you're thinking that, I would ask you to try your best to suspend those thoughts for about seven more pages of notes, (laughs) and I will try my best to assuage that very common fear. But first, I want to tell you a story, a story about some us-who-are-them folks who live on the western end of the island of Hispaniola, because there is a truism out there that when we understand one another's stories, when we understand one another's lives, the distinction between us and them begins to get less and less pronounced. When we understand one another's stories, we get more and more into the idea that our spiritual forebears intuited a long time ago, that we are connected, that we are all children of God. So, let's see if that can happen for some orphan kids living in Ferrier Village. Those kids and their house moms and their teachers and the town that surrounds them, their neighbors there in Haiti, they're in a pickle. History has conspired to make it very difficult for them to turn around their fortunes. I want to go back about 250 years and kind of see how they got there. And hopefully when we understand their story, we can feel what what, would it be like if we had or if our children had been born there. So in the 1700s, in the 1700s, the French colonized the western end of Hispaniola, and the Spanish colonized the eastern end. At that time, France was much stronger and much wealthier, had more sway in geopolitical events than Spain had, and so consequently, Spain invested hev- or France invested heavily in their colony, and Spain only invested lightly. In those days, investing in meant importing slaves. So they imported lots and lots and lots of slaves. 
many, many of those cruel slave ships that we have seen depicted ended up coming to the western side of the island. By 1785, 90% of the population of what is now Haiti were slaves. At the same time, on the Dominican Republic, what became the Dominican Republic on the eastern side, only 15% were slaves. The French colony became the richest colony in the New World by exploiting slave labor, primarily on sugar plantations. What is now Haiti became so wealthy and produced so much income that it was producing one quarter of France's annual gross domestic product. But as we know, exploiting people is not a very good long-term strategy. By the early 1800s, both Spain and France were struggling with wars of their own, and they were having to deal with the rise of England's navy, and under pressure from slave uh, uprising and under pressure of disease, the high cost of sending their army there to reinforce the status quo, both Spain and France eventually abandoned the island. On the Hades side, not surprisingly, the slaves rose up, rose up to destroy the institution of their own debasement and their own enslavement. They killed most of the French uh, plantation owners and the foremen. They burned down the plantations that had symbolized their torment, and they ripped up the infrastructure that had so oppressed them. But in the process, they also wiped out the technological brain trust that was needed to build an economy. So after France left, there was this very large population that could not now go home, but there was not the economy there to begin to support them where they were in this new land with their newly uh, won freedom. They didn't have the infrastructure to begin to support that many people. Rebuilding the plantation system that had been wealth-producing was so odious and so out of the question that it was not even an option, as you can understand. And so they did what people do. They broke the land up into small family farms about the size that would produce what a family needed to eat. And so they began to grow what they ate. And they fiercely defended land ownership. As God is our witness, we will never be enslaved by foreigners again. And while that makes sense, it turned out to be kind of a disastrous policy for the Haitian economy. Because they were unwilling to go back to the sugar economy because they were fiercely protective of land ownership, feeding their families off of the land, they never developed a cash economy, a trading economy. They didn't grow anything or build anything to be sold overseas, and they cut themselves off from one of the primary re ways that nations enrich themselves, foreign international trade. Having been burned so harshly by enslavement, you can understand that, swearing off any kind of exploitation, making sure it would never happen again, they enshrined a governing principle into their constitution that prohibited uh, foreigners from owning land. If they can't own the land, they can never enslave us again. Now, the Dominican Republic, on the other side of the island, on the other hand, invited foreign immigration and foreign investment because they had not been burned nearly as badly by slavery, only 15% of them. And so through the 1800s and the 1900s, a small but an economically very important group of immigrants began to invest in the DR economy and did not invest in the Haitian economy. And so it was very economically difficult for decades after decade after decade in what became Haiti 
People were living near subsistence levels. And the government never remained stable for very long because there, there was not a strong tax base. There wasn't a strong support of investment and business and the things that governments do to build infrastructure. And so consequently, the people rose up again and again to say, you've got to do better, you've got to do better. So there was coup after coup after coup because we've got to feed our kids. Do better, government. We've got to get somebody in there who will help us. So from 1843 to 1930, the government was thrown out and a new one was created 50 times. 50 times there was an upheaval in those years. 30 of those times were revolutions with guns and blood. So, in addition to the Haitian discomfort with foreign uh, capital, foreign investment, foreign land ownership, there is, in the mind of the traders who were on the scene at the time, and still today in many ways, an entrenched bigotry toward people of African descent. That also factored in. People of the DR were more attractive to the European investors because they looked more like the European investors. Haiti was composed primarily of African slaves. Consequently, the DR began to develop an export economy with chocolate and tobacco and coffee and sugar, and Haiti did not. So during the decades following the upheaval and the loss of colonization, Haiti fared far worse economically than did its neighbor. And under the pressure of that economic instability, there was also that decade after decade of political stability and one after another, coup after coup, insurrection after insurrection, instability began to become so exhausting and the turmoil so costly that the people accepted a ruthless dictator simply to stop the blood flowing in the streets. They needed a leader who could bring some semblance of order, some semblance of peace, and they got one, who ironically got that order by killing anybody who stood in his way. Both the Dominican Republic and Haiti have the dubious distinction of having had the most evil and ruthless dictators in all of Latin America. But by the luck of the draw, the DR got a hard-working and administratively gifted dictator. His name was Trujillo. He tortured and killed anybody he got in his way, but he did work on the economy. And the reason he worked on the economy is because he thought of it as his own family business, and he happened to go work hard on the family business. Haiti's dictator, Duvalier, Papadoc he was called, tortured and killed even more of his countrymen than Trujillo did. However, he didn't give a hoot about the economy. And after he and his successor son died, instability picked up just as it had before them. The already weak economy became even weaker. The one little bit of a cash crop they had, which was coffee, began to decline uh, as an important part of the economy. An index that measures lifespan and education and standard living on several different scores found that Haiti had the, the lowest score in the hemisphere, lower than many nations in Africa. In the DR, the next dictator from 66 to 96 kept working on the economy, but again, by the luck of the draw, Haiti's leadership did not. And even though DR is today still considered a poor country, it has all the marks of a growing economy. Haiti's economy can't even support its own population. Theirs is a desperation kind of poverty. Now, the last time that Help One Now came and spoke with us, Several of us began to sponsor orphans in Ferrier Village in central Haiti 
Michelle's family has been supporting Love G. That's his name. This is his picture. And it is in the national context that I just described, it is the historical context that I just described into which Lovji was born, what, five years ago, four years ago? He's about four or five years old? Three years old? Three years ago he was born. So that means this is the life he's going to have. These are the opportunity limits that are going to cap off the opportunities that will unfold from his life. But there's more. The weather systems on Hispaniola come from east to west, not like they do on our continent from west to east. And so, consequently, the island's 10,000-foot mountain range that divides the two nations stops some of the rain. So, consequently, not as much rain makes it to Haiti as falls in the DR. More rain supports more plant growth. More rain supports more food production. Soil is naturally much thicker and much deeper in the DR than it is in Haiti simply because of the way rainfall works. And take that plus Haiti's history. The plantation economy that became the exploitation of the soil for the enriching of European nations, the use of family farms in order to feed an ever-increasing population, that meant that more pressure was put on the soil in Haiti than was put on the soil in the DR. Consequently, they had to bring more soil under conservation, which meant they had to chop down more trees, and they had to have less natural land. And because so many slaves were imported during the French period, Haiti's population today, even after all of these decades of a shrinking economy, is still larger than the population of the DR. More people to support, fewer resources with which to do it. A more exploited soil base, higher population density, lower rainfall. More people who need to cut down more trees to create more charcoal to cook more food. Deforestation may turn out to be the most limiting factor in the rebuilding of Haiti of all of the factors that the Haitians have to face. Because wood is the only cooking fuel that is financially viable, but the forests were cut down a long time ago for all of those pressure-driven reasons. And forests trap falling rain, and the rain that falls in Haiti is not being trapped. It's running off the land, and it's running off the land very fast, and it's carrying with it the little topsoil that is left in the nation. Scott went down to Ferrier after we began exploring where we would put our energies in terms of building relationship with something that's going on. And so he said when he was there, when it rains, he said, the runoff looks like liquid dirt because there is so much soil in the water as it runs off so rapidly because it is not stopped by any plant growth that it carries away the little bit of topsoil that is left. And it carries it into the ocean where, he said, when you fly, you can look out and see a plume of that fertility going out into the ocean and not there where it feeds an overpopulated nation. Now in the DR, forest conversation was one of the hobby horses of both Trujillo and his successor. Again, luck of the draw. If you're going to have a torturing and killing dictator... You might as well have one who protects forested land and protects the quality of the soil because it does change everything. Because of this convergence of historical forces and agricultural forces and political factors and social factors, children born in Haiti today are born into 
the, one of the poorest and overcrowded nations in the world. And they're born into a nation facing a soil deficit that will take decades, if not centuries, to overcome. And they're born into a poverty that is desperate enough that even if they do replant forest land, they can't afford to wait to cut it down until it hits a critical mass because the need for food is so desperate and the cooking fuel that they use. So there is, it's very difficult to make any traction in the pursuit of preserving ground cover. And then came the devastating earthquake of 2010, which did two things. It upended even the meager infrastructure that existed and highlighted for the world to see the quiet destruction that has been going on in Haiti for centuries. Jared Diamond, who wrote the book Guns, Germs, and Steel, which you haven't read, that's a really good book, wrote another book called Collapse, in which he studied ancient societies, uh, contemporary historical societies, and current existing now societies, and he began to study why is it that societies collapse. That was the name of his book, Collapse. In that book he said this, as he looked, about, looked at Haiti's collapsing nation. Haiti is so poor and so deficient in natural resources and in trained or educated human resources that it is really difficult to see what might bring about any improvement. Everyone familiar with Haiti whom I asked about its prospects used the words, no hope, in their answer. Most of them answered simply that they saw no hope. But those who did see hope began by acknowledging that they were in the minority and that most people saw none. Then they themselves went on to name some reason why they clung to hope. This is the world into which Love G was born. This is the desperate situation that he will face for decades, the however many decades he gets to live on this earth. This is the hole into which he was born, a hole that many doubt he will ever be able to climb out of. And he, our spiritual traditions, is your child. And he, our spiritual tradition teaches, is my child. We are one. We are not two. We cannot go to bed comforted that our children eat before they fall asleep when other children don't. We cannot be comforted by the fact that our children go to school and our children have a bright future when some abstracted idea of their children do not. Lovji ended up in Farrier Village. He lives in one of those houses. He does have a house mother. He eats before he goes to bed, but many of his cohort do not. And instead, out of abject poverty, are trafficked for sexual or labor reasons. So what do we do? What does NRCC do? I mentioned earlier that the reality of that much pain, that deep a hole, can simply be immobilizing. The need is so big. And we ourselves, we're stretched thin as it is. That's true. And to compound that truth, we Americans have been trained in the importance of solving our own problems. We are taught to live independently. We're taught to make things happen on our own. So when we run into a problem that is too big for us, we have had to develop a coping strategy, a survival tactic. And here's what it is. 
When we see something that we can't solve that's just too big for us, we check out. We put our attention somewhere else. We go think about something that we can do something about, and we just don't pay attention to things we cannot do something about. But in a oneness world, that just won't do. But here's the magical part about being part of a community. There are things that we can do together that we cannot do alone. There are things that we can do together that we cannot do alone. Together, we have the ability to break big things up into little ones. We have things here in Raleigh that people in Ferrier, that people in Haiti do not have. Here's what we don't have here in Raleigh. We don't have superior intelligence. Here's what we don't have. We don't have better local understanding. Here's what we don't have. We don't have insight that comes from on-the-ground capacity. We don't have any of that stuff. But here's what we do have. We have resources. We don't know where to put those resources. We don't know the wise way to use those resources. We don't have enough local understanding to know what to do with those resources, but we've got them. Our soil, the soil of the nation into which you were born, has not been depleted to the degree that the soil in, Nashi, in, in Haiti has been depleted. Our history didn't hand us a dysfunctional economy. It handed us a functioning one. Consequently, a $100 sacrifice doesn't mean nearly as much to us as a $100 sacrifice would mean to a person who lives in Haiti. $80 for bricks or for a composting bin or for breeding goats. $40 to feed an orphan on a monthly basis. These things don't cost us what they would cost them. $1,000 for seed money for a micro-lending endeavor. These things don't cost us nearly what they cost them because we were born into a very different context, into a very different history. We've got our own blind spots, but we have an economy that rivals any economy in the world. Help One Now is working hard to come alongside, to not stand above, but to come alongside local leaders who have already demonstrated effectiveness in their leadership in areas in Haiti. And we're, they're working hard to connect leaders and resources and put the two of them together. And they're working hard to help people work together because it is a truism that is rooted in the fundamental truth about reality that one is a better description of reality than two. It is a truism that we can do together what we cannot do alone. There is something that can happen when people join that can't happen when people work independently. A, word that best, a world that is best described by oneness rather than two-ness. That's the world we live in. And that kind of world demands that we not stand by when our people suffer. And the people of Haiti have become our people once we understand the teachings of Jesus. That is what he meant when he talked about the kingdom of God. That is the truth that we learn when we follow Jesus. That is the truth that we learn when we take up the tradition that includes an advent that speaks on love. For this is what love teaches us. So in 2015, you're going to hear the NeighborServe team talk about Haiti. And when you do, I'm going to invite you to think about how our brains tend to deceive us. 
how our brains trick us into feeling a sense of solidarity with nearby people, but not feeling that same solidarity with faraway people. And I invite you to consider what it is that we have to give to the us that lives across the sea, the us that lives in Haiti, the us who are facing social factors and political factors that we are not facing. And consider how our little community can join with a little village way over there and in a very little way begin to change the world. So, Spirit of God, I pray that we would, this Advent season, take in deeply the meaning of love in a oneness world. And may that turn into transformative change in and among us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.